Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am especially honored today to have on the podcast a, a, a good friend of mine and a wonderful person, Judge Stephen Dillard of the Georgia Court of Appeals. Uh, jo- Judge Dillard is a graduate of Samford University, and he is a proud alumnus, alumni of, of Samford University. Uh, he graduated from Mississippi College uh, School of Law. He clerked for Judge Mannion of the Seventh Circuit. He spent many years in private practice um, as an excellent lawyer. He was appointed to the bench in 2010, successfully ran for election or re-election in 2012 and 2018. He's the former chief judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals. Judge Dillard, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. So, Judge, I usually begin these podcasts by asking my guests to uh, discuss three myths about something. And in your case, why don't we just make it easy and say, can you give us two or three myths about either being a judge or judging, which may be different things? I don't know. Right. So I think there's uh, there's several. Um, I think one of the things that, that you hate to see in in public discourse is the idea that all judges or even most judges are political. I, I just don't believe that's the case. I think most of the judges I know are um, dedicated public servants and they're trying to get it right. We're, we're far from perfect, but um, that's just not been my experience, especially being on, you know, we talk about diversity on courts and we can always do better, but um, in, in terms of that on the Court of Appeals, we really do have a very diverse court. Um, in terms of not only ethnic makeup but, or gender, but also geographic and just background, the types of different practices. Uh, and that's been real, that's been a blessing for me. And, and so I, I think that's probably the first one I would say. I think the second one is that you know, judges either always or mostly simply impose their values uh, through their opinions. I, I just disagree with that. Now we can talk about the Supreme Court of the United States and, and maybe that's, you know, people can have different views about that. Um, uh, but but, but I, I just don't uh, believe that's the case. And I also more specifically, I don't believe as someone who is a self-professed textualist and originalist, I don't believe that textualism when properly done and originalism when properly done, I don't believe those are inherently um, politically conservative um, uh, methods of interpreting the law. Um, I, I, I think if you are a faithful textualist and a faithful originalist, um, those those methodologies, those ways of interpreting the law provide um, parameters within which the judge can really seek what I think is the, the best um, answer based on um, as neutral principles as I, I think you can find. So I think that's another myth to me. Okay. And then I think in addition to that, there's the myth that, that, that judges either rubber stamp what their staff attorneys and clerks do in, in writing draft opinions, or, or that they rubber stamp if you're on a panel like I am on intermediate court, that we simply rubber stamp um, uh, what, what the other judges, the, the authoring judges assign, whatever uh, he or she writes. And I, I think that's a, especially here in Georgia, that seems to be a myth. Um, and so those are the three myths that, that I thought of when you asked that question. Well, Judge, anybody who knows me or my podcasts or my work knows that those first two myths I'm not going to be able to let alone. So I'm, 
Let's try to let's try to do. Uh, if I did that, I think people would boo would would boo somehow on the podcast. So l- let me <laughs> let me dig a little deeper on the first two, <clears throat> if you don't mind, with a couple caveats though. Just last week, I posted a, a blog post saying that we are all in fact legal realists now, um, and that we're not all originalists now, as Justice Kagan once kind of said, but didn't really say. If you read her entire quote. But in that blog post, what I said, and I want to be clear about this with you so we can have a a good discussion, what I said was legal realists like me are often mischaracterized by our critics because I said I concede that most of the work of trial judges, state and federal, legal realism doesn't have much to say about it. um, Those aren't usually very difficult legal issues. There's other stuff going on, evidentiary determinations, uh, jury instructions, whatever it is. Um, And I even said at the Court of Appeals level, and although I was talking about the Federal Court of Appeals, it's true for, I think, State Court of Appeals, most of the work doesn't involve hard First Amendment questions or hard, you know, equal protection questions. It involves other things, certainly at the federal level reviewing the sufficiency of evidence for criminal convictions is a lot of what they do. And and, and legal realism doesn't have a lot to say, in my opinion, opinion, about about that that either. either. What I I was saying is when any judge at any level has to first address a very hard, difficult constitutional or even statutory interpretation question, let's leave it to the Constitution, either state or federal, when judges decide hard legal issues without binding precedent, that's where we say, or I say, values have to come into play because those case, those issues normally have ambiguous text and contested history. Do you think I'm wrong about that? I, I, that's not been my experience as a judge. Now, I have to say, being on the Court of Appeals of Georgia, I don't get to answer um, constitutional issues of first impression when there is a constitutional challenge to a statute or ordinance. Um, And so those bypass my court and go straight to the Supreme Court. But that said, I do have a lot of cases where there's some really difficult questions, usually in the textualism context. But one of the things I know you know this in statutory construction is um, in order to interpret statutes, you have to view them through a constitutional lens. I mean, you, that has to impact how you uh, analyze in terms of even when you're running through the canons, one of the ways you may choose which canons that you're going to apply in a certain case is going to be dependent upon I- any constitutional rights that are at play. And so, you know, that's there is overlap between originalism and textualism, but I'm usually in the textualism camp. But I, I can give you example after example that if I were simply applying being a, a legal realist judge and applying kind of my policy views um, where I have done the exact opposite of that because I believe that applying these different canons and applying precedent, and it's it's not always one or the other. I mean, it can be a mixture of things. You can you're going to have a you can have a case where the precedent from the Supreme Court of Georgia or the Supreme Court of the United States might not be directly on point, but it's relevant. You you you, you so you've got to take that into account. You you, you look at um, if you're looking at a statute in one context and in another context, the Supreme Court of Georgia did something that you think might apply here or might be analogous, you have to look at that. I also look at what other jurisdictions have done with similar text. And so um, to me, I'm trying to get the right answer. 
that that's or the best answer you know there's not always a right answer sometimes there is um but but a lot of times i'm trying to get what i think is the best answer uh and i've got a great staff and you know in terms of uh you know i don't talk a lot about politics obviously publicly anymore but but i all of my uh staff attorneys are counter clerks and i do that intentionally um because i i want to be challenged i want to have I want to make sure that I don't drift, but every day I try to make sure that I'm not imposing my, because that's not why Governor Purdue appointed me, and that's not why the people elected me. They didn't elect me to impose my values um, on the rest of the state and the citizens through my role as a judge. Now, where I think values come into play a lot for me is how I write, how I express myself, how I make the points in describing why I reach the result that I've reached after I go through the reasoning. And in that reasoning, sometimes I admit in my opinions that I've struggled with this from, from a personal level. And you can see me struggling with it, yet still reaching a result that if you looked at the comments I made prior to becoming a judge, you'd, you'd be like, wow, I mean, that's, that's not, <laughs> I think that's what he would have done. So look, I'm, I can only speak for myself, but, but I know for me on a daily basis, I'm constantly, trying to and it's not easy but i'm but i'm i'm trying to always say you hold this as a seat of trust as a judge this is not your seat it's the people's seat and you need to make sure that you're doing the role because if it's if i'm not a judge if i don't if i'm not going through this different analysis of precedent textualism looking at what the words mean that were passed by uh, the plain meaning of the words if i'm not looking at what the constitution as ratified or as amended means then i'm really just a policymaker, and i'm not really a judge and then why do we even have law lawyers as judges i mean why not have philosophers if, if that's what we're going to do so that's i can only speak for myself and how i approach the law um i think that's that's um, very articulate, Your Honor. Um, I, I have two follow-up questions, and this is, of course, I could sure. talk about this topic to next Friday, but we'll, we will move off of it. But I do have two follow-up questions. Um, the first one is, and it, I, I don't want to give a specific example. I want to talk about it, you know, generally. What do we do with old statutes, Georgia, you know, or, or federal statute if it's a federal case in your court, um, with old statutes that have imprecise terms? That have terms right. that that are not clearly defined, even by the standards of the day. And of course, Georgia law is full of those, I assume, and so is federal law. If they're imprecise terms, and they were initially drafted by the legislature in 1961 or 57 or 1890 in the antitrust act, whatever it is, is it really? Is your view that all you're interested in is what it meant that day when it was passed? Or, or, or is there a possibility that by using vague terms, the real intent of the statute was that judge would interpret it over time because that vague term doesn't capture or isn't, isn't a picture of time in any realistic sense? Does that make sense, that question? Of course, the Bostock case raised this issue with, you know, because of sex in Title VII. But as far as any statute goes, what's your reaction to that? All right. So what I would what I would say is in looking and a lot of statutes have imprecise terms. And so to me, that's what the canons are for. That's what I might look at other statutes that were passed during that time and how those were interpreted by the court. Mm -hmm. um, to me, words have a reasonable range of meaning. And I think once I start guessing 
about what a legislature many years ago intended. Um, I just think that's dangerous. And I think especially with a statute where the legislature can come back and change it. Um, I'll often say, in my opinions, look, I realize this result may not be palatable <laughs> and it may be that the people want to change this. We, we had a case like that, um, an upskirting case um, where we, we issued an opinion and we basically said, as the law stands right now, as a court, we said, this is not criminal conduct. It's immoral conduct. And it ought to, all of us think it ought to be illegal, <laughs> but, but if we're gonna put someone in jail, it ought to be clear um, that this is that this is criminal conduct. Now, that's hardly a decision that people would applaud and say, oh, what a great conservative textualist opinion. No, the reaction to it in the public was understandably, who are these bozos and why have they written this opinion, not putting that guy in jail for that conduct? Well, because we don't put people in jail for conduct that, that where you aren't on notice as to as to that what you're doing is a violation of the law even though i mean if i had just imposed my i didn't write the opinion but i i joined the opinion by judge branch uh who's now on the 11th circuit and and if i would just been imposing my values i would have i would have gone the other way i would have joined the dissent in that case uh, which i disagreed with but i thought was 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 uh well written and and, and thoughtful um but but that's a case where my 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 interpret the way I interpret the law and the way I approach the law led to a result that personally I struggled with. It, um, it's it's funny you mentioned what's what we call in the law the rule of leniency, which is when in when in doubt a, a, a canon of construction yeah. is you know the, no one should be put in jail for conduct that wasn't clearly prohibited. Um, uh-huh. When judge, I know you know I'm friends with Judge Posner and uh, you know he hates canons of course he's he's the hater uh-huh. of all canons. I will say this. In my conversations with him about uh, Scalia and Garner's book about canons, the one mm-hmm. canon, uh, more than one, but one of the can, one of the few canons that Posner actually thought had bite and that really was important was this one, that, that as a matter of just fairness and due process and how we want to run our country, people shouldn't be put in prison absent clear notice. So I, I appreciate that. The second question I wanted to ask you. Um, which I think is is super important these days, more more than ever before in my lifetime, is it's about the Supreme Court of the United States. I think you can opine about it, but, but it's about all judges, really. One of the things I love about your work, even when I disagree with you, which of course I do, you know, sometimes. Sure. You you have a way, as, and you, as you said this, of suggesting and how you write that these are hard questions, and that you know the dissent. You don't agree with the dissent, but it's a reasonable dissent. And, and you just think maybe your opinion is slightly more persuasive. But on most hard legal questions where there's dissenting judges, you know, reasonable disagreements exist. Of course, as a legal realist, I believe that too. Why can't – you know, you read appellate opinions, D.C. Circuit, Ninth Circuit, or Supreme Court opinions, and they're so strident. Like I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here. No matter how close the case is. You know, the, the, the majority opinion lambasts the dissent, and the dissent lambasts the majority, and the rhetoric is pitched way up here. Right. I assume you agree with me that's a bad thing. And, and why do. do you think they do that? You know, I, I, I think, you know, we're trained lawyers, of course, and all yeah. uh, most of us come to the bench 
having many, many, many appellate judges have been litigators, not all, but most yeah. I think have. And I think sometimes it's hard to leave that behind. And so we get into this battle and I think our instincts kick in um, from being the old warriors when we were lawyers. And what, what, what I attack are ideas. And even then I try to do it in a way that is kind and where I try to look at the other side in the most charitable light possible. Because at the end of the day, once again, you have to depersonalize this stuff. You know, I it, this is not about me and it's not about any other judge. We are trying we we are. I always say judges are trustees. Right. We we hold these seats for, for on, on behalf and representing the people for a limited time. And while we hold them, um, you know, our job is to do the business of the court and try to reach the best answers that we can. Sometimes we're going to disagree on that. On our court, as diverse as we are, we're probably unanimous 90 something percent of the time. It's in the other cases where, where we aren't. And when we disagree, we ought to be able to do that um, without being disagreeable. Now, have, have I ever been snarky? Yes. Um, <laughs> I've never heard you snarky, Judge. More, more so as, as probably a lawyer than as a judge. I've tried to, um, you know, I did have one line in an opinion against my, I was on the other side of my dear friend, Judge Gary Andrews, and I felt like, uh, you know, his interpretation of the record was way too favorable to the state. And I think I said something that, that the majority's interpretation of 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 the facts uh, in favor of the state is charitable to the point of enabling. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I, I I'm not I'm not with without you know I I'm not going to sit here and say that I've never. But I, but I think if you read the body of my work, um, you'll see what, when I'm disagreeing that I do so. Um, I, I don't ever attack people. I attack ideas, and even then, I try to do it in a reasonable and charitable way because. These are our colleagues and you've that person, um, uh, you know, it's as much as as I've admired many judges and justices for their intellect. And, and, and over the years, some of my heroes have not always been charitable with their colleagues. And I think those relationships suffered. And actually, I think the law in many cases suffered because of the inability to treat your colleagues with respect and kindness and um, uh, I, I just think it's 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 not only wrong, it's 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 really bad strategy, you know, as, as we used to say in the old skit with Will Ferrell. <laughs> uh, it's just not a good idea uh, to do that. And, and because the next case, that person might be an ally. And that's the problem, not only with judges, but also with our culture is this idea that the person that's with me only 75 or 80 percent of the time. Or, or even if they're only with you 15% of the time, you never know when somebody can be an ally. And so this idea of demonizing people that don't agree with you or, you know, kind of letting them have it in an opinion that's going to be in the books until the end of time, it's just not a really good idea. So I have a hard question about that, Judge, because I know um, I know we're likely to disagree on this maybe, although on this sub point, maybe not. So everyone knows that I am as critical of Justice Scalia is probably any legal academic out there. Um, I won't go into all the reasons I'm critical of him. But one of the things that I'm critical about him for, and Erwin Chemerinsky wrote a lot about this after he passed away or even before, is I do think Justice Scalia, and I know he's kind of 
someone you look up to a little bit in some ways. Um, he admitted that his dissents were for law students. He admitted that when he was alive. So we don't have to guess. He said that. Um, and he wrote them often in a funny, witty way, conceited. And he was a great writer, one of the best writers ever. Um, but also he wrote them in a very sarcastic, biting way. And there, we can, I can point you to 30 different ins- personal insults that he leveled at his colleagues. He didn't call them out by name, but we knew who he was talking about. And Erwin argued this really because he's such a hero to so many people on the right that this lowered our discourse in a substantial way. And that if only Scalia had used his talent, his, his immense writing talent, to be witty and funny but not mean, he would have made a much more contribution and might not even have pushed some of his other judges away, like Justice O'Connor, who allegedly moved to the right sometimes. Wait, what's your reaction to all that? Well, I mean, I, I will say this. I mean, I, I, I've always, even, even when I, obviously, I don't agree with everything that Justice Scalia did in his life, but I do think he re- redefined the debate on textualism almost single-handedly, which is, and he won that battle. I mean, in terms of statutory construction, you don't hear us talking about court versus Ash anymore. I mean, that's gone, right? Alexander versus Sandoval, Scalia won that battle hands down. And so he's he's forever changed um, statutory construction. Um, he didn't win as many battles uh, um, in terms of the originalist arena, but he certainly redefined how we have that debate. I don't think Justice Scalia was perfect. I don't think his own family would say that he's perfect. Um, and I don't agree with some of the approach that he took in terms of how he dealt with his colleagues. The impact of that, I can tell you that even as somebody that admired him and reading his opinions at times, I, you know, I would have that moment where like, wow, you know, I don't know that I would have said that. Um, as someone who kind of grew up in that that movement, what I would call the kind of the early federal, you know, I'm not, I wasn't the first wave, but I always say I joke that I was kind of the generation kind of after the apostles with the federal <laughs> society, but I've, I've been involved with it since, you know, 1993 and, you know, Talking to my my friends and people that had similar views, that's, you know, those sorts of things were not what attracted us um, to uh, Justice Scalia. It was his his writing, which was incredible. It's the same reason that I have such great admiration for Justice Kagan. I mean, I'm a huge admirer, great admirer of Justice Kagan, even though I might not always agree with her, um, her judicial philosophy. I mean, I just have such admiration for her as a writer and as a person and as a public servant. So that drew me um, to Justice Scalia and and also his approach, which, you know, I I won't get into whether he was always faithful, but for me, what attracted me was this idea of trying to find the right answer or the best answer in a case and using these tools. Um, And as he used to say, um, it's not a perfect textualism isn't perfect. Originalism is perfect, but kind of what's the alternative to that? And as for me personally, I can only speak for myself. That to me has always been um, the basis for me, the most comfortable I am with doing my role as a judge in terms of trying to apply as neutral of principles as I can in doing my job. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to reach any conclusions about I don't have a doubt that Scalia had an enormous impact to what extent he lowered public discourse. Um, if you were going to argue that, I think you'd have to argue it within the legal arena because a lot most Americans aren't reading Supreme Court opinions. 
Um, but I, you know, I also think there were a lot of great contributions that, that, that Justice Scalia had, but just like anyone else, you know, we're all mixed bags. We're all sure. imperfect. And sure. I think he did a lot. I think he will go down in history um, as, as one of our greatest um, Supreme Court justices. And, and certainly, if you don't agree with that, one of the most influential is maybe a better way to say it. One of the most influential, most consequential uh, Supreme Court justices of all time. What's interesting to me about that is I, I think his uh, impact was outside the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I think, as you said, that first wave and second wave and maybe third wave of Federalist Society students, lawyers, judges, um, looked to Scalia as a role model in a lot of ways while hopefully also recognizing his rhetorical excesses you know, sometimes we're excessive. And as you said, we're not, everybody is flawed. I don't know if his opinions themselves, if you wanted to count on one hand, his most impactful majority opinions, it would not be that easy in constitutional law. I agree about statutory interpretation. It would be hard to do because he didn't write very many, you know, he wrote some, but he didn't write, for someone who was on the court for as long as he was, um, actually the reason I think he didn't write that many majority opinions was the same reason Justice Ginsburg has written virtually no important constitutional law majority opinions, except for maybe VMI and a couple others, because Justices Kennedy and O'Connor had the monopoly on that <laughs> when they wanted to for so many years. And that's another problem we, we can talk about. Um, all right, let's change subjects for a minute. Um, one of the things that I've, I admired about you before we, I ever met you, <laughs> well, I think, was you were one of the first judges, along with uh, then-Justice Willett of the, Georgia, of the Texas Supreme Court, now Judge Willett, and a couple others, to go on social media and do it right. And when I say what I – let me tell you what I mean by doing it right, and then I'm curious how you think about it. You, you presented the non-legal side of yourself, because it would be inappropriate, I think, to present the legal side. You presented the non-legal side of yourself as a person with hobbies – with foibles, a sense of humor, sometimes good and bad, sadness sometimes, optimism, who you are as a person. And, and because we'll agree or disagree, I think your character does matter a lot to how you decide cases. That was so important. What, what put you on that path? Did you get pushback from your colleagues? Do you get pushback today from being as present as you are on social media? I'll start with the last question first. I think I get a lot less pushback. I think when I first started doing it, you know, some of my colleagues on the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court would kind of give me a hard time. Of course, now the Supreme Court of Georgia has an official account that they use, uh, so does the Court of Appeals. And, um, you know, you, I know that at least I think half of my court is is on Twitter and Facebook and I know that there are at least, I think now four or five Supreme Court justices uh, from the Supreme Court of Georgia that are on uh, Twitter and Facebook and they're actively involved in social media. Um, you know, Justice, now Judge Willett, uh, you know, put it, I think, aptly when he said, uh, when he noted aptly that, you know, if you are an elected official and you're not on social media, um, uh, you're committing, uh, you know, political malpractice. I and like that. I like that. Th there are, there are a lot of, um, but you know, as, as, as my mom used to say, um, uh, doing the right thing is good politics. And the problem with social media is not the medium. It's people not using the medium 
in a way that is prudent or wise. Yeah. Um, just as you can go and give a speech to the Rotary Club and say something horrendous, um, you can do that on social media as well and show poor judgment there. Now, the difference in social media is that it's amplified and you can argue, well, that's what that's what's dangerous and how it can hurt the judiciary. Um, I would say that's that's it's it, it's that's starting to come together in some respects, because now, given how everyone has a cell phone, everybody's recording everything. The, even if you're not on social media, there's a there's a danger that what you're saying is being recorded. And so I, I think the, the positive side of that being aired is that maybe we lose some judges that we need to lose. Uh, and, and some of them are removed that need to be removed. Uh, you know, uh, transparency reveals what it reveals. And so um, uh, early on when I did Twitter, uh, I did a lot of, hey, I'm going to speak to this group, the GTLA or the defense lawyers or PAC or the criminal defense lawyers. And I had a law student actually uh, messaged me and said, listen, I think it's really cool that you're on social media. And I talk about this, by the way, just to give a plug for my article that, that uh, uh, Chief Justice Bridget uh, Mary McCormick and I wrote for the Journal of Appellate uh, Practice and Process. Um, but I talk about the fact that uh, this, this student, then law student, messaged me and said, listen, why don't you tell us about who you are? You know, this, this stuff is really not terribly interesting and it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be a little more interesting if you shared a little bit about your job, kind of took photos when you go to cool events and, and just laid out. And I thought, you know, that, that makes sense. And I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think somehow it's beneath the dignity of my office to, to share, to kind of democratize in some respects, the, the position because so much of what we do is behind the scenes. Um, and so sharing that with the public, I think, is, is, is a good thing. So, you know, that's what I've tried to do. I mean, I, I try to keep it, um, you know, I don't know that I'm as out there as, as my friend uh, uh, Judge Willett once was with the dad jokes. But, uh, but I try to, you know, uh, be part of the culture, you know, like I'm watching Yellowstone right now. A lot of people are watching that. Uh, I, I listen, you know, I post some of the music. Music is such a powerful force in our lives. Yeah, I'm supposed to ask you about Radiohead, but I'm not going to. So go on. <laughs> the answer is in rainbows is the best uh, Radiohead album. That, that's, that's, that'll be the hottest thing, hottest take I give. Okay. Um, but, but I mean, I think sharing those aspects of who you are as a person humanizes the bench in, in I think, a very profound way. And I also talk about serious things. I mean, you know, just today I was, you know, talking and highlighting uh, aspects of debates about how we select judges, how we retain judges. Um, I, I, I highlight interesting law review articles. I mean, I, I've done Q and A's on oral argument and legal writing. And so it's it's a lot like I am. I mean, it's it, you get a lot. I, I do a lot about Sanford University because that's that's meant so much in my life. And I'm very active. I'm a very active alumnus. Uh, and so, you know, I think all of those things let people know now, look, obviously you put your best foot forward, right? I mean, I, I'm not perfect. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not always nice. I, I have a you know temper just like anybody else. And there's nothing wrong with putting your best foot forward. And, and a lot of the times when I put things out there about, you know, we need to be kind to one another, it's because I need to hear it just as much as everyone else does, especially this year, which has been a taxing, difficult year. Um, and so, you know, I hope that what people get out of my account is that I am someone who loves his family, who loves God, 
and who also is is a human being who's doing the best he can in a very important position. Judge, I I, um, I have two follow-ups to that. Uh, one is I know you're just speculating here, but and I don't want you to say anything that would get our mutual friend Judge Willett in trouble. I, I've defended him on Twitter to liberal people who have totally mischaracterized his views, and, and I, I like Judge Willett a lot. I disagree with him about 99% of things. I think he has a man of great character, and, and, and from my perspective, if, the, if I have to have conservative judges, you and Judge Willett are the kind of judges I want. Um, my question is, do you think that you said you're an elected official? And, and I, love, I love Judge Willett's quote that you just quoted, that if you're an elected official, you should be on social media. I mean, it, do you think it's any different, though, for federal judges? I mean, I know they serve for life. They're not elected. But all of the reasons you just gave, very articulate, coherent reasons for why people should know who their judges are, doesn't that apply the same to federal judges? I, um, I absolutely like if I were, I mean, and, and let me just say, I, I, I have no interest in being a federal judge. I'm a, I'm a state judge for life. And so, um, you know, I, I had uh, people that, that approached me about that. I wasn't interested. Uh, but if, but hypothetically, if I were interested and I did go through the process and I were selected, um, I would still be involved in social media because I think the issues um, that uh, Judge Willett and and uh, Chief Justice McCormick have raised about civics and transparency. You know, federal judges have largely, and we talk about this in our article, have left the field to state judges. And in many respects, I think you're going to see state judges become increasingly influential in de- important debates about the future of the judiciary because federal judges, for the most part, are not engaging in, in, in that kind of public debate because they think it's, I guess, unseemly. And I've worked in the federal system, so I know the culture there, uh, and I understand how hard that is to change. But what they need to understand is that the world has changed dramatically, especially in the last decade. And this idea, and I don't think all federal judges feel this way, and I know a lot of them are are incredible public servants who are dedicated and they're involved in their communities and they're doing a lot of things. But this discomfort with social media, that's how people are communicating. And it may be Twitter may be gone in a few years and Facebook, and we may have some different form, but we're going to have something like that. And increasingly people my age and younger and some even older are demanding um, greater transparency and accessibility. And judges, I say this in the article, and this is a big line, judges are different. They're not special. I okay? love that. What, what I mean by that is the nature of our role is such that we absolutely cannot and should not. I don't care if you're in a state where you're running as a Republican or a Democrat or whatever. You, you cannot discharge your duties and be, be a partisan hack and be politically partisan. I, you cannot do that. Um, no, no job, if you do have to do that, no job is worth um, having to do that because of the harm it does to the judiciary. Um, so, but, but all of that said, you know, I, I think, you know, for federal judges, um, th- this idea that, you know, because when I was coming up, judges were up here and everybody else was down here and y- you would have these limited interactions. They're always cloistered off. And I just think people coming up, they- they- they're not going to accept that. They don't. 
judges are public servants. We serve the people. We're not we're not these kind of robed philosopher, you know, ruling over everyone. And, and, and that's I think we have that idea. And that's been involved in our culture in America for a long time. And that part of it, I've never been comfortable with. I just never been even when I was a lawyer. And so as a judge, I've tried to be more approachable. And I've always tried to emphasize the servant role of being a judge. That's that to me, being a judge is look, it's extremely important and my job is important, but I'm not important. I'm just a person doing a job. And and what I do is important and who we select is important, but I'm not some sort of, you know, um, uh, ruler sitting on high. I've just never been comfortable with that. I, I really like Judge, and I agree with the we're making generalizations, of course, but the, the, the differences between state and federal judges. My, my experience, at least in Georgia and, and some other places I've been, I, I ran our externship program for many, before you and I met for many, many years, 15 years. And we, had, and we put students with judges, state and federal, all levels of, 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 of state and federal judges. And, and my experience has been there's something about both life tenure and the grandeur kind of of the fe- of of the constitutional law cases occasionally federal judges have to deal with below the supreme court that they do think there has to be a distance that they have to be at a distance from the lawyers the parties and the people and i think that's a mistake and i agree with you 100% whereas the state judges i'll give you one example again from somebody who's va- who's who i don't agree with very often is justice david namius who clerked for justice scalia Probably could be on the federal bench or maybe on the federal bench someday if he wants to be. Um, known as an intellectual judge by, I think, state law standards. Very conservative, very Scalia-like. And he, but he cares about people a lot. And he cares about students and he cares about being on the ground. And I've learned a lot from him over the years, and my, and my, like you, and my stu- like I've learned from you. And my students have learned a lot. And there are occasional federal judges like that, but I think they're the exception, not the rule. And do you, how much? So I guess my question to you is, how much of a role do you think life tenure plays in that? I think it does play a role, and I think there is, you know, to kind of quote the account, the uh, the Yale Law, you know, there's <laughs> kind of an business status to all of that, and yeah. I think, uh, you know, there's a, a feeling among those federal judges that. You know, I think by nature, they're risk averse. And and even though they have life tenure, they don't want to. Like I said, this is a culture. I I was in it for two years. I mean, I, I, you know, I was a federal appellate clerk and at one of the, I think, the most elite prestigious circuits in the country. You know, at the time I was there, the Seventh Circuit had Posner and Easterbrook and and Diane Wood. And, you know, I mean, I, I go through all of them, of course, my judge. And others. And I mean, you know, it was incredible experience to do that. Uh, And I just think some of that is is just cultural. But the times are changing. And I think state judges have been forced in many ways um, to adapt. And I think that's uh, a good thing. Uh, And and here's one other thing I I do want to point out about it. I mean, I, I have the utmost respect for all of the justices serving on the Supreme Court. They're public servants, and I appreciate all of them. But if you watch oral arguments where they talk about technology, it's painful. <laughs> it is painful. painful. <laughs> and 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 they're at a, at a certain point. I mean, they are going to be deciding 
some of the most consequential, um, uh, you know, it's see in the Fourth Amendment, they're going to be dealing with some of the most, and at a certain level, you have to have a basic competency to under, if you're not, if you are completely removed from a medium, from social media, how could you possibly serve uh, on the Supreme Court or, or participate in cases like that without having some under, I'm not talking about being an expert, but just having some understanding of the medium. And I think that's especially true at the trial at all levels. You have to have, I mean, think about in the domestic relations arena, how much social media has completely transformed that area of the law or discovery or, you know, you name it. I mean, this is, this is not, this idea that social media is this just frivolous hobby or activity that has no real world implications. It, it has enormous, enormous real world implications. And so judges have to be, you know, uh, maybe it's the old biblical thing. We need to be in the world, but not of it or completely true, but we have to understand who we're serving. Once again, we're public servants. And if we're detached and we live in this bubble, this kind of ivory tower bubble where we don't ever associate with the people we serve, that's, I think, dangerous. And I'm not suggesting all federal judges are that way, but I do think it's fair to say there is a culture um, that limits their public accessibility. Uh, and I think that that's going to need to change. Somewhere, I don't remember the year, Judge, but somewhere between 2006 and 2012 or so, when he should have known better, Chief Justice Roberts didn't know the difference between a, a beeper and, and like a cell phone or something. I mean, it was really embarrassing at all argument. Um, rumor has it Justice Kagan is on Twitter anonymously. I don't know if that's a true rumor. Um, have you ever blocked anybody on Twitter? I have, and I, I, early on, it was not somebody from Georgia. I have a policy that no matter how abusive someone gets from Georgia, I do not block them because my view is that they are my boss and they have the right to yell at me and, and call me names. And I don't, I don't, I have the right not to respond. Uh, and I can mute them. I sometimes will mute people that do that, yeah. but they've got the right to do that. Um, I, I uh, but I, I did go back. Uh, it, oh, uh, I want to say several years ago, and unblocked everyone, even from other places, because my view is it's it's just not worth it. You know, you're a public official, and I, I hadn't I hadn't blocked maybe in my entire time on Twitter. Now, I will say I do block or I did block. I think some of them went away. These these kind of spam accounts yes, that yeah. are, sure. are you know, vulgar in nature. I mean, sure. I, I don't I don't feel any. That's not really a person. And that, you know, right. at least that doesn't count. Sense of, yeah, I mean, exactly. Any or, or anyone where they're offering the sunglasses or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, I'm not, you know, if they're if they're spamming me and sending me messages, I'll, I'll I, you know, I, I sometimes will. uh uh, you know, block those, and then you know, eventually clear them out because they're gone because those 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 accounts are taken off. But I, I just don't think it's a good idea. We talk about this once again in the article. Um, I think you know, there's going to be people. Look, you're a public official. There's going to be people that are going to disagree with you. That are going to say nasty things about you, and you just have to suck it up. I mean, you just do, and that's just that's that's part of being a public official. And it's true, you're going to get more of it if you're on social media. But I think you're also going to um, have a better chance if something does come out in the news and people know who you are and you're taken out of context. I think people will defend you and say, well, you know, you, you don't you don't know this per person. You're taking what he or she said out of context. Because the problem is we can't 
engage. I can respond, like if somebody uh, message, message me or a response to a tweet says, your website site is hard to navigate. I can respond to that, right? If somebody uh, says something to me like, you got it wrong in this case, I'm not responding to that. You know, I'm not, it's not appropriate for me to do that. Or if somebody just wants to call me names, I'm not gonna get into a Twitter fight with that person because I never stop being a judge. I think it's fair if someone wants to have a debate about something that's not particular to a case. Like, you know, if I wanna debate somebody about the Oxford comma or more seriously, if I wanna debate somebody about how judicial elections work or whether we should have them, I think all of those things, as long as they're done respectfully, enhance debate and trust in the judiciary. Um, but but you got to know it, once again you got to exercise good judgment online just as you would in real life. It, it's interesting, um, Judge Willett, when he was Justice Willett, actually had this problem because he wrote a very long and public, I forget if it was a con- concurring opinion in a Texas Supreme Court case involving um, uh, hair salons and licensing of hair salons, and he could not have been clearer, Judge could not have been clearer that the case was decided for him under the Texas Constitution, and he dropped a footnote saying nothing in this opinion is about federal law. Despite those two facts, a lot of my liberal friends and progressive friends on social media said that Judge Willett, at the time Justice Willett, was all about Lochner and wanted to bring back Lochner. And this was you know, Lochnerism, the famous case from 19, for those listening from 1900 uh, or so where you know the court engaged in what many of us think was aggressive judicial activism. Anyway, that's not what he said. And it was clear it wasn't, he said, but he couldn't. And although at the time he was on Twitter, because he was a Texas Supreme Court justice and had, you know, tens of thousands of followers, you're right. He couldn't say anything. It would have been inappropriate for him. So he, we didn't, so I actually did it for him. And I said, you're misreading this. Whether I agree with it or not, he's not talking about Lochner. It must be frustrating to be mischaracterized that way and have no real way to correct it. That's a new social media world, and it's hard to know what to do about that. It is. And look, there is, I, I, we say in the article um, that Chief Justice McCormick and I wrote, there's a downside to social media, and it's not for everyone. Um, you know, it can be toxic, and you will, you, you know, the higher your profile, the more likely you are to be attacked. And, you know, it, look, I will say this at a certain point, the benefits, you know, it, I, I think it has to vary from person to person. You know, at a certain point, the benefits of doing it may be outweighed um, by the personal cost or the mental, you know, your mental health. I I don't think judges are required um, to do it. Uh, or, or to submit themselves to kind of daily abuse. Um, now, you're, you may be abused whether you have accounts or not, um, <laughs> but, but, but I don't think you have to actively participate in the abuse. And, you know, I mean, there have been times where I've been online and I'm like, you know, is this, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And, you're, you know, you, once again, I think you have to, and here's the other thing I think you have to realize is that when people are doing things like that, maybe something's going on that you don't know about. And, um, you know, what I try to do in those moments where someone's, you know, engaged, I'm like, you know, what I say to myself is they don't know me. They don't know who I am. Right. Um, and I don't know them and I don't know what's going on in their life. And maybe maybe I should, you know, obviously I can't respond. Um, but but, you know, in my own mind, I'm going to wish that person well and and hope that whatever it is, because it's just not normal to go out of your way unprovoked to attack someone. And so if that's going on, uh, maybe there's something, you know, maybe 
it's hard sometimes but to muster up kind of the compassion to say something's going on with this person um right. and you know i've had people that have done things like that that have later apologized and said hey you know or see me in person and they kind of sheepishly come up and say you know i said something to you you know, kind of nasty i was frustrated with something you wrote you appropriately didn't respond but i just want to say i'm sorry i'm like that's fine man we all have once again i'm not perfect either you know, none of us have lived perfect lives. None of us uh, is beyond reproach. And, and I think all you can do every day is to try to be the best version of yourself that you can. And, uh, you know, social media, what I think about social media is that um, I try to at least give people a glimpse into who I am as a person, uh, faults and all. And, and uh, once again, I think it humanizes the bench. I don't think it's a bad thing people to you know we're not infallible and i i don't doubt that i've gotten things wrong as a judge but but what, what i would say is if i have gotten things well Supreme court tells me i've gotten things wrong i may not agree with that but they, they tell me <laughs> I've gotten wrong. But, yeah. but what i always try to do is make sure that the process by which i got to that that wrong answer uh was honest so, and, and and was a process that that people can have faith in that i that i did the best i could um, and I think that's all you can really ask from a public servant. So I, I, have, I, have, I have one question about what you just said, which is going to be a hard question. And then I want to – we have to end pretty soon with a really hard question, which you may not answer. But on the, on the second to last question, um, you said you, – you, in, in a, a few minutes ago, you, we were talking about polarization. And you used the phrase, especially this year. I think that's what you said. They can roll the tape later, but I think that's what you said. Um, so this may be a question you don't want to answer, and it's totally fine if you don't. I feel like – so you're, you've been a longtime member of the Federal Society. I've been a longtime member of the American Constitution Society. I'm on the board here in Georgia. You know, if we, if we, dis, if we discuss 20 issues, you know, having a beer somewhere off the record, we'd probably disagree legally on 18 of them. But I really respect you and admire you and have since I first got to know you. Um, and we can put our differences aside. And to me, that used to be the rule. Like in 1993, to me, 97, I, I was a young law professor. I was kind of a whippersnapper. Maybe I still am. I don't know. You know, people I disagreed with, we would disagree and go drink or, or disagree and go play pick up basketball or something. I mean, we could be friends and disagree. And I feel like that's becoming so much harder and I'm curious what you meant by especially this year in terms of polarization. I think what I was talking about is just just kind of how hard things have been this year and everything's amplified. But oh, okay. I, I think what I just mean it, this year, especially, I, I just think we're all under an enormous amount of pressure. I think, look, we need social interaction. Um, you know, I, I'm someone, even though I'm outgoing, that on the weekends, I largely like to, you know, have my weekends with my family and to myself because I need time to recharge because of the nature of what I do. Uh, I'm kind of, I always tell people I'm an extrovert introvert, which is maybe a weird thing. But Me I too. Am. No, you and I are the same. Agreed. <laughs> right. See, there you go. Yeah. Um, but, but I think this year has been really hard. And I think that that's what I was getting at. Like when okay. people vent and when they, when they lash out, I try to, especially this year, think about it in those terms. It's really been a, it's been a hard year. And, you know, I think uh, people just have to be cognizant of the pressures that they're under and we're under. And I, I, I think it's okay 
what I would say to my friends, whether they're involved in politics or anything, where there's a lot of, you know, where you have a lot of stress going on in your life, don't increase your stress on social media. Social media should be a kind of a, uh, um, you know, a refuge or an oasis in your life. It should not, you know, you don't want to go from a stressful life to getting on social media and, you know, making it worse. But, you know, look, it's, it's, I just think in general, in the last, you know, um, few years, even the last decade, we've seen this. I mean, look, you can go back to the founding and you've got, you know, the founding fathers fighting in the streets over issues. So it's not like, you know, um, everything has always been civil. Um, but it does seem that it's gone from really vigorously disagreeing to the point of fisticuffs on, you know, about the meaning of the law and how, um, you know, how the importance of separation of powers and that sort of thing to really becoming personalized. And you don't you don't agree with me on this position or whatever. You know, you're an evil person. And, you know, I try to read people um, um, uh, who I vehemently disagree with. Um, there's a <laughs> lot of people um, that, that I want to read them because I want to be challenged. And, and there are times where. You know, my allies have written things that have pushed me the other way. And there are times where people who are not my natural allies have written something that at least causes me to rethink um, my I, I think that's part of being a human being and a person that is that is serious about to the extent someone's trying to be a public intellectual or, or certainly right. publicly thoughtful. Right. Um, I think you need to be open to uh, and if you're in an echo chamber and you're simply surrounding yourself with people that just kind of confirm um, your beliefs, uh, I don't think you're doing your, yourself any favors. And so I, I do think we're becoming more more, more po polarized. And um, you know, I I have been very blessed in my life to have a lot of people who I disagree with on a lot of things who have become very dear friends, and I am a better person for having those relationships. It makes me a better, more thoughtful um, uh, uh, person. Just, I mean, it just does to have people like that in my life that I can, you know, talk to things, you know, talk about issues with. Um, so I, I, you know, I encourage people to do it. Whatever anyone wants to say about Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, I think they modeled for us um, how you can have very stark ideological differences and still really have a deep, love for one another and friendship. And I think that is something that they are both to be commended for. Yeah, I always say I'd much rather have a discussion with somebody who disagrees with me than somebody who agrees with me, because what's the point of that? Judge, I do have to ask you, because I think I would be criticized if I didn't, and you can say no comment. Um, leaving aside all political issues, Don Donald Trump's style, in my opinion, has made this much worse. Do you want to comment on that? I, I don't comment on particular politicians. Okay. Um, I, I just don't want to do Fair that. Um, I, I will go back to what I said previously that I think um, many leaders in different, whether it's executive branch or the legislative branch, what, what I would say to them is when, when you or to anybody, even if you're not an elected official, when you when you're saying something or when you're debating with someone, what is your goal? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And if you're actually trying to to um, impact policy or impact change, 
um, you're you're not likely to do that if, if you're not engaging someone, viewing them as a person that has inherent dignity and worth, and as, as somebody um, that you're being respectful towards. And so that you know that's I say that because it, it seems like just nationwide um, the level of public discourse has gone down so much. Yeah. Uh, and people can have debates about what they attribute that to, but I don't think you can attribute it to any one person. Uh, okay. I really don't, regardless of their position. I think it is there is a there is a cultural rot that is going on in that regard, and I think it's something we as a society are going to have to address at some point. Well, I think you're doing it as well as anybody. Okay, um, my last question is my is one that's going to. I, would, I, I want to say you're, you're always self-reflective, but I really want you to be self-reflective about this. Um, so you have always reminded me of the judge I clerked for. Uh, I clerked for Judge uh, Moy, uh, Samuel Moy, uh, who ran for governor as a Republican in Georgia in 1970, I think. And back then, of course, Republicans couldn't ever win. But he was a very conservative judge. But he was a great judge. He passed a few years ago. And he was a great judge because he had a sense of decency and, and this is going to get me in trouble with some people in the Federalist Society, a sense of empathy. Now, I'm not suggesting that he used that empathy to do things the law didn't require, but his sense of empathy was always present. And if nothing else, the people before him knew that he had a sense of empathy, which I think I personally think all judges need to have. And you remind me of him, and he's also intellectually curious. And so on the empathy level and the intellectually curious level, you remind me of him, which is a, a high compliment because I love my judge. It's, it's a high compliment. But judge, when we talk about legal realism, so we're circling back now to the beginning. And I want to say for the record, you brought up legal realism, not me, so I get to talk about it. Um, one of the reasons you're the judge you are, is, in my opinion, is because for whatever reason, whether it's your parents, your family, your genes, your church, the combination of all of that, whatever it is, you are an empathetic person. Your being an empathetic person leads you to be more open-minded than a judge without empathy. And to me, that when, when we talk about legal realism, what I'm saying is the character of the judge, when the law is unclear, is going to make a difference. And we should study both the law and judges who interpret and, you know, give out the law and who they are as people because it matters. It really does matter. There were, there aren't, in my very biased, opinionated, you will disagree opinion, I, the judges that Donald Trump is appointing, by and large, I don't think have empathy. Some do, but many do not. I don't care how conservative a judge is if he or she has empathy. I think you are a great judge, even though I disagree with many of your legal opinions, because you have empathy. That's what legal realism means to me to some significant degree. Is there anything about that you disagree with? I mean, I think we're – I agree with you up to a point, right? I mean, I agree that empathy matters in a judge. In, in, in terms of the, the interactions you have with lawyers, the interactions you have with staff, how you present yourself to the public in terms of confidence in the judiciary, I think empathy uh, plays a part in how I write my opinions. Um, I think where, where we may disagree 
is empathy is not going to lead me to a result that I believe is not fairly within the um, uh, within all the different tools that I use. I mean, I, I have had several opinions that in my mind result in, in a very kind of harsh, almost draconian in some cases results because I believe that's what the law required me to do. Um, and so there is a stopping point for empathy. I cannot use empathy to override the, you know, what I understand the law to be. Um, and so it may be that there are aspects of empathy that are enshrined in the law. And to the extent they are in the positive law, then obviously that matters in terms of, because everything's contextual, right? I mean, in life and law, context matters. Um, but if, if, I, if I come and I'm looking at it and, uh, and, 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 it's, it, and I, I believe that one, res, one result is more faithful to the law than the other, and it, it maybe seems harsher, I'm still gonna go with the harsher result, notwithstanding any empathy um, I might have. I'll, I'll give you one very quick example. I had the Richard Jewell case, yeah. um, uh, the, the one where his estate sued the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I mean, you, you get into all the facts of that case. And I ruled against his estate. Just, just, just for those listening, he was the alleged bomber of the Atlanta Olympics. Some people may not know. Yeah, that's right. And so if you go read the end of my opinion, there's a paragraph at the end where I talk about his legacy and heroism and saving all those lives. And I said, you know, I, I wanted to honor that because I think a lot of what happened to him, um, and I'm not talking about the legal issues of the AJC in particular, but a lot of what happened to him was so wrong. Um, and I, I felt compelled to do that because of my empathy for him. Uh, even though he had already passed, I wanted his family to know that I recognized him as a human being and, and I recognized what he did on that day and his heroism. But I still had to rule against him. Right. Um, and and so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but but empathy matters to me. It certainly matters in how I communicate, how I interact with the public, either through or just in person or through my opinions. But I think there is there is for me, maybe in, as opposed to other legal rules, it's not going to impact my ultimate how I ultimately decide a case. I, I think I would argue that that who you are as a person and your natural empathy leaves you open to arguments in certain cases that somebody without that kind of empathy might not be open to. So I think that may, I think that's certainly a fair point. And I do agree with you completely that character matters very much. I don't, I hope I've never said anything that suggests (laughs) that I don't think character in a judge matters. It matters in judges and it matters in every other elected official. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I've so I, I yeah. talk to you. We talk a lot, but never in this formalistic kind of way. And I was worried, but I, I feel like I feel like people will get to know you even better, and that's a good thing. Um, and people can sense we disagree about some things. Um, and I think your position is reasonable, and I hope you think my position is reasonable. And I, that's Absolutely. all we can do. Thank you, Your Honor, very much. Thank you for having me.